blessing to be able to gather and proclaim he is worthy. Worthy of all honor and all glory, worthy of our lives. That's a blessing. It's a truth. Uh, we proclaim it much easier than we live it, though, right? We know that's a reality for us. Uh, and this morning, we're going to really talk about the pursuit of living that out. The acknowledgement of who he is and letting that truth have its implication and its way with us. Because if we're honest, we recognize that it is easy to follow a savior who sets you free to be you. It's easy. To follow a savior who sets you free to be you, who just wants you to be comfortable, who just wants you to be safe, who just wants you to prosper. But it's difficult to follow a Lord, a master, who transforms you to who he wills you to be, whose message is die, die to self, take up your cross and follow me. That is a much more difficult reality. And perhaps that's why in Revelation, Jesus is described outside of that final church, outside of the church of Laodicea, standing at the door and knocking. Not to unbelievers. This isn't an evangelistic verse. He's standing outside the doors of the church, knocking. And it begs the question, why is the Savior not in the church? I think it's because Jesus is a demanding Lord. He is a jealous God. As you've been reading through the Pentateuch, as you've been reading through these first five books of the Bible, you understand there is one God and he is a jealous God. He has called his people to set aside all of their idols and worship him and him alone. And Jesus is that same God. And he's Lord. And if we're honest, we kind of like to keep him at a safe distance. Because we like some of our idols. And I think we're afraid of what he might do to those idols. And so we keep him at a safe distance from these precious idols that we've built up in our life. And inside we worship a false version, a safe Jesus, a domesticated Jesus who affirms you rather than transforms you. And churches are saturated with this false, domesticated version of Jesus, a Jesus that does not demand we put away our idols. Jesus who just wants you to be comfortable and safe and prosperous. The problem is the Bible knows no such God. The Bible knows no such God. There is only one God. He is a jealous God and he is worthy 
of all honor and all glory and all your life. He demands our life. He is Lord. And his name is Jesus, and before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And we exist for him. He does not exist for us. By grace and mercy, he acts for us. He loves us, but he does not exist for us, we exist for him, and this is an important reality for us, because the gospel we believe in determines the disciples we make. The gospel we believe in determines the disciples we make as a church. You see what I mean? If you believe God is working for your comfort, then you're going to produce disciples who live for their comfort. If you believe God is working for your prosperity, then you're going to produce disciples who live for their prosperity. But if you believe God is working for his glory, then you will produce disciples who live for his glory. And don't you see the tension in our individualistic society and worldview that that brings to us immediately. And so what I want you to get is when we embrace a truth, it changes us. When we embrace a truth, it's like a virus. I know you guys haven't thought about a virus in, you know, like minutes. You know, in all seriousness, we're, we're going to come back to that. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the coronavirus and some of the, uh, just the situation and the circumstance mentally it's putting the U.S. church in because the reality is, regardless how old you are in this room, if you are alive, it's creating and facilitating a dynamic that the U.S. church has never wrestled with. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when we embrace a truth, it's like a virus. I didn't just use that illustration for here. That's old. It goes back to Dallas Willard and Bill Hull and all these guys years ago. It's like a virus. We're infected by the truth. It changes us. It changes the way we feel. It changes the things we do. We even infect other people with it. So when we hold something to be true, it has an impact on our life. And at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, we talk a lot about the truth that is proclaimed in Deuteronomy 6. Our study group and life group strategy is built on this foundation. Our family discipleship and our family uh, uh, ministry is built on this foundation, built from this truth. Throughout history, known as the Shema, just the Shema. It's the most quoted passage in the history of the world. All the practicing Jews would have said it twice a day. Jesus almost certainly said the same thing. It just means to hear, hear. Shema is here in Hebrew. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, as it begins in verse four. And it's a call to pay attention, pay attention. It's God's way of saying, this is important. Hear it 
let it sink in and apply it. You know, speakers have, you know, these little verbal tics and, you know, I like to make fun of Mike's power whisper at times, you know, I can't do it, but I like, and so he doesn't do it very much anymore because I think I've teased him so much he stopped a little bit. But they get me too. I mean, I've got more than any of them. I know, I am the most unpolished, worst communicator of the bunch and so I've got tons. One of the ones I say a lot is listen. And I say it a lot, like 30 times a sermon. So keep count, you'll get there. And people are like, you know, you gotta stop using these things. And, you know, my, my response is, truly, truly, I will. <laughs> if you didn't get that, keep reading with us. When we get to the Gospels, you'll understand. The Shema is the foundational, the fundamental truth and duty of Israel's faith. It implies not to just hear, but to hear into action. And to the church, it's our virus that changes us. It's what makes us different. It's our why. It's our why. Church, listen, it's the big truth. The big truth. Let's read it, beginning in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Old Testament built and emphasized around these passages. So much so they, they took the, uh, the, the Orthodox Jews took uh, the final verses and practiced them literally. You'll see uh, the tefillin that wraps around their arm all the way up to their head and uh, sets as a frontlet between their eyes. If you go to their house, you'll see the mezuzah nailed to the door frame. Inside uh, both the tefillin and inside the mezuzah is a scroll with the verses we just read written on them and rolled up literally between their eyes, literally on their doorposts. The New Testament emphasized this and nowhere more clear than Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 40. He's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He doesn't make something up. He just goes back and he quotes these verses. He goes on and he acknowledges that to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, these two dynamics that are so connected based on who God is, on this, you can hang the entire Old Testament. All the law and all the prophets rest on this truth. It is a virus that changes everything. Why? Because it is the why. It is the big truth. There is only one God. There is only one God, our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy comes on the hills of the Exodus. We've been able to read through that recently and study through that, and you realize Israel is left in awe. 
at God's work, his power, and his authority. They have seen and learned there is no one like their God. In rhetorical form, in Exodus 15, verse 11, inviting a negative response, they say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? See, monotheism, this belief that there is only one God, is not common practice in their day. Egypt had many gods. The Canaanites had many gods. Practically speaking, everyone around them had many gods and recognized many little gods. Gods for this, gods for that, gods that competed for this, gods that competed for that. But Israel's monotheism meant Yahweh was not simply first among other gods, but he is the all-powerful, unique, one true God. He and he alone is supreme. And this recognition puts in play a certain theology. It brings certain implications. God has no rival. God has no peer. He alone reigns above all. And so when God speaks, no one else can stand to contradict him. When God promises his people something, no one can revoke his promise. When the one true God warns, no one else can provide refuge. When the one true God blesses, no one else can rob his blessing. When the one true God saves, no one else can destroy. Why? Because he and he alone is God. And it means we owe him everything. It means he and he alone is worthy. And worthy not just of a portion, but worthy of the whole. He is the lone authority, and all authority comes from him. He is the only source of value and worth. And all value and worth is defined by and comes from him. Why? Because he and he alone is God. And all of creation belongs to him for his glory for his purpose, for his honor. And so how should we respond to such a being? So God makes this incredibly revealing proclamation of himself. I am one, I have no peer, I have no rival. How do you respond to the one true God? And he breaks it down and he's gonna essentially give us four implications. I think they're progressive, that's just an opinion that I have. I can't prove that in scripture. You can kind of pay attention to that as you go through it. At Tri-Cities, we call those implications big ideas. There's a truth, that truth has implication. We just call them big ideas. Things that press down into our life, into application, into practice. The first one, love. Love the Lord your God. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Few blessings have been distorted like that of love. We have taken love and we've reduced it to a reaction, to an emotion, a feeling. But love as defined by scripture is a sacrificial commitment. See, the objective commitment is the driving force behind love. The emotion is secondary. We flip that. We've defined in our culture as love is something that happens to you. You fall into it. 
And who knows, one day you may fall out of it. And we measure love by the way we feel. But you need to understand when God says, love the Lord your God, he's not asking you to just feel. He's asking that you lay down your life in a resolved commitment to him. Love is the absolute purposing of oneself toward another. And because we see it as an emotional thing, we struggle to know exactly how to strategically apply it. What I'm saying to you is God is not sitting up in heaven going, man, I hope they come give me a hug. That's not what's happening here. God is giving us the duty of making our lives about him. He is declaring, recognizing, I am. I am the one true God. And you owe me your life. He is due our love. We are to aim our emotion to him from a place of commitment. And so he goes into heart and soul and might, and it's a descriptive example of the totality of the love due the one true God. This is reinforced in the New Testament. Jesus talks about this throughout the Gospels, Mark 12, Matthew 22, Luke 10, other places. Let's break them down with all your heart. Now, when you see heart in the Old Testament, it's, it's a little bit of a mind trick for us because heart in the Old Testament means intellect. We think of heart and we think of Valentine's Day, right? Like Cupid, like those little sweethearts with little messages on them or whatever. We think of that kind of stuff. That's not what heart means in the Old Testament. Heart in the Old Testament is your intellect. It's your intellect. It's one's reasoning. It's one's complete thought process. It's more than just a specific thought. It's the entire reasoning function. The entire rationalization process. Here's what God's calling us to. A mental commitment to love. We are fixing our mind on him. So we might use words like brain or understanding or mind or consciousness or memory or logic or discernment, but what you need to understand is this isn't an emotion. This is a call to all that we can mentally muster. Just to give you an example so you can see how clear this is, like in Proverbs, wisdom literature, heart is used 99 times. Listen to how it's used. Proverbs 2, 2, incline your heart to understanding. Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart. 3.1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. 3.5, we know this one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now listen to the contrast, and lean not on your own understanding. See, this isn't a call to just feel something. This is a call to think. This is a call to all we can mentally muster. He goes on in the Psalms, he says, my mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart. In Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Genesis 6, 5, the thoughts of his heart. 
Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Isaiah 6, 10, and understand with their hearts. The first charge with all our heart begins with a mental commitment. Examples of it you might see might be something like Daniel who purposed in his heart, who meditated and thought on who God is and chose I will not defile myself before him. He is greater than whatever circumstance I may find myself in. And the faithful don't excuse themselves from this. And we got a bad habit of doing that. Let's just own it, we wanna excuse ourselves. And so we say things like, look, I mean, that's good, but that's just over my head. That's just, you know, that's for some smarter people. Let me just let you in on a secret. It's all over our head. Who God is, his work, his ways, it's over all of our heads. Our calling is to pursue him, is to long for him, is to get on our knees before him and say, God, give me the wisdom that I might know you more tomorrow than I do today. It is a longing to know him. And so we don't excuse ourselves from that. We don't just say, you know, I don't like to read and I don't like to think and I don't like to study, so I'm not gonna engage in that. Listen, that's not your personality, that's unfaithfulness. And it might come easier to somebody else than it does for you, but the reality is you long to grow into who he is. Why? Because he's the only true God. You exist for him. You want to know him. He goes on, he says, all your soul, all your soul, the soul's like one's being. Um, it's that non-physical ego. It includes our emotion, our feelings, our passions, our zeal, like our ego, our personality, the things that kind of make you unique and you, you know, you, you use all of that, all that God has gifted you with, all those passions that are yours, all that zeal, all that energy, all that is just you. And you use it all to love the Lord. Because he has formed you that way for his glory. And you use all of it. Your passions aren't for you. Your gifts aren't for your advancement. It is all set aside to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might. Uh, might, by the way, is more than just one strength. Uh, it's all of his or her resources. So, you know, we tend to think of might as like this strong guy, but Proverbs 24, 5 says, a wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. See, church, a mighty man could be some scrawny little wimp of a figure who with his great riches and resources has an army at his back, who changes and influences the world. Do you know what that makes us? Some of the mightiest people who have ever walked this world. Just by the reality that you are in this room, you have more resource and more opportunity for influence than the vast majority of the people around the world could have ever dreamed of. You are some of the mightiest people who have ever walked this planet. And God calls you to use all of your might to love him. All your resources, all your influence for him. 
The next big idea, think, verse six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Think. These words shall be on your heart and your thoughts. Again, this isn't just some single thought or uh, some quick devotion to start your day. It is a mind-controlling awareness that there is one God, and he is over all, and he is worthy of all glory and honor, and I will filter everything that comes into my day and everything that comes into my mind by the reality of who he is. It is a call to meditate, to not turn our eyes away from him, to fix our attention on the reality of who he is. Third, we teach, we teach. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach them diligently to your children. First note the direction of the children. So here's what I want you to understand. The Shema is written to all of Israel, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. That's all of them, all of God's people. All of God's people have a responsibility to play in proclaiming the truth of who God is to the next generation. We all do. In one another's lives, in our families, in our households, we all have a part to play. The primary part of that will be played in the context of the house, in the context of the family. Because as we teach these things, the ones who we will live life with, the ones who we will wake up with, the ones where we will go to bed in the same house and take the journeys with, they're our families. And God says, teach the children. Teach the children. Within the full scope of the community of God's people, proclaim the reality of the one true God to the next generation. We teach it. And when we see teach, by the way, we're talking about something that's really unique here. The, the word that's used here, it's a Hebrew word, it's shana, it's used nine times in scripture. This is the only time it's translated diligently teach. It's just one word, if you're following. It's just that one word, shana, here, diligently teach. Everywhere else, it's to sharpen a sword. Here, here's the point. You don't sharpen a knife or a sword by just randomly hitting it against a rock. That won't work. I've tried it. <laughs> I got in trouble. Little kid, you know, you get, anyway, it doesn't matter. Another story, another day. All right, there's a strategy. There's a skill to it. And watch, you have to keep doing it. It doesn't just stay sharp, it's continuous. Here's the charge, teach diligently. Teach with intentionality, with a plan, with strategy, with skill. You don't just react and just, you know, you see a rock over there and you just hit it. No, there's a strategy to this, there's an intentionality to this. To teach, what are you teaching? The truths of God's revelation, that he and he alone is God. You teach who he is to the children with strategy, with diligence. That's why we have study groups. That's why as a church we hold up, man, you need to have a discipleship plan. You need to have a strategy for the discipleship in your home. That's why we have the family discipleship plan. And if you don't have a plan, it's a plan. Start with it. 
Let it lead you into teaching your children, to teaching your grandchildren. Let it lead you into talking to them about who God is and who he's called them to be. That's our fourth big idea, talk. Continuing verse seven, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall talk about them. Fear is not given by the spirit. Fear comes from the enemy, and if we're just honest, when, we, when we're wrestling with talking, it's met with a lot of fear. Some of us more so than others. There's just the general fear that some of us have just talking to another person. It's a common fear. We don't like to stand up in front of people and talk. But there is a greater fear when we are asked to talk to them about the things of the Lord. In those moments, we step into spiritual warfare. We step into uh, some really hard realities that challenge us. And regardless how hard those realities are, it is not an optional thing for us. It's not something we just do once or twice and get a kind of check off our list. It is a specific way of life in which we are to interact with one another. And to make that clear, God goes on and he gives us some specifics about what this talking should look like. He says, first, talk in your home when you sit in your house. Home is your place of authority, it's your place of control, it's your place of comfort and rest. No one should be able to come into your home as a Jesus follower and not hear about the one true God. It just seems like an absurd thing. In your journeys, as you walk by the way, when you're journeying from spot to spot, let me give you a, kind of some descriptive handles. When it's seasonal and routine and when it's unpredictable, you're gonna get on your journeys and you're gonna take your kids to school every morning like clockwork and what an opportunity to talk about the things of God. But you're also gonna have the unpredictable moment when you stop to get gas and that random person standing right next to you on the other side, just both of you just standing there. What an opportunity to talk about the one true God. In your evaluation, when you lie down at the end of the day and you're reviewing and evaluating your day, you don't just do this internally, but you share, you communicate, you talk. Your daily evaluations should filter through the reality of who God is within the discussion, within conversation in your home. In preparation, when you rise, when you're preparing for the day, the first task of your heart, your soul, your might should be to talk about the day ahead in light of who God is. I know you're afraid, but God is good. You can trust in him. We talk about these things. And let's just be honest, it's really hard to learn without talking. I mean, really, it's hard to wrestle with our idols if we're unwilling to talk to one another about them. So why don't we talk more about who God is in our churches, in our homes, in our communities? And I think it really just comes down to the simple reality that when we talk about those things, it exposes us. It exposes our idols. When we talk about the truth, it steers toward unavoidable conflict. And conflict in today's culture immediately leads to offense, 
and the church has bought into the lie that if anyone is offended by us, we're in sin and we're wrong and we should have waited it out. And the offense threatens our idols. So what do you mean? It threatens our standing that we cherish in their mind, the relational equity that we've built up. It threatens our peer-centered image. It threatens our comfort, our safety, our prosperity. It threatens our happiness. It threatens our leisure. So what do you mean? It means, I mean, if I get involved in your business and I really come in and begin to engage and get in your life, you know what your life is? Your life is messy. And if I really insert my life into your messiness, you know what you're gonna want? My time. And you know what I wanna do with my time? Go play golf. Certainly not get involved in somebody's mess. And I'm unwilling to lay down my idol of leisure, my idol of freedom to get involved with my brother. See, the vast majority of those you read about in your New Testament, they were martyred. They suffered. Do you think their motto was really, you've got to earn the right to talk about the hard things? If that was their motto, they were horrible at it. They were just horrible at it. Because they talked, they questioned, they debated, and they offended the comfort and safety and prosperity of the people around them. And they proclaimed, Jesus is Lord, and he calls for your life. And time after time, it did not end well for them. So line up and just tell them they're harsh. Just tell them they need to work on their tone. Just tell them to chill a little bit. Tell them to wait it out. Tell them to keep earning the right. Tell Stephen, man, if you just will hold your tongue a little bit, you can come back and fight another day tomorrow. But the reality is when you go through account after account after account in your New Testament, whether it's Jesus or the apostles, you're gonna see the same thing, the boldness to talk about the idols that we've built and given false worship and allegiance to rather than the one true God. why we should talk. It's why we do things at our church like behind the message. It's why we have things like the family discipleship plan. It's why you need to be in a life group that you can wrestle with these things and you can invite people in to question. What's that statue you've got built over there in your heart? Why do you do that? This week, that kind of got to happen for me in a real just reality way. We're sitting around the dinner table, my, wife, or my, my daughter goes, hey dad, will we go to church if the coronavirus is here? We hadn't talked anything about that, she, just a random question. And I said, sure, without even thinking about it, sure we will. She goes, wait, what? <laughs> that was her reaction, really. <laughs> wait, what? I said, yeah, we'll go to church. Jesus is worth it, right? She goes, dad, we, we could get sick. We could. No, dad, like really sick. Like people die, I saw it on the news. I'm like, where are you watching the news? At grandma's. <laughs> she goes, really, it, 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 it could happen. People could get really sick. What happened next was a conversation about who God is and how we exist for him. It was a conversation about our idols, of our fears and our safety and our insecurity and our community. See, for the first time in our lives, the gathering might really cost us something. 
or at least when we may feel like it will. Might have to deal with the real fears of that. For the first time, we might get pressure from our employers not to gather or go out on mission. Pressure from our neighbors, our friends and family. Schools might get closed and gatherings will get shunned. And there'll be pressure from within, within ourselves and our own fear and our own insecurity to validate our idols of safety and family and community. And let's just be honest, the church in the US has never faced that, not in our lifetime. We've never wrestled with that. We've never asked the question, what am I willing to pay together? What am I willing to resolve in my heart to be like a Daniel or a Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego? We've never had to wrestle with what must I do like a Stephen or a Paul or a John or a Peter or a Timothy. See, if we're honest and we're gonna talk about it, many of us began these compromises a long time ago. Frankly, we were discipled into it by a generation before us, if we're just honest about it. And we've determined that the gathering is not worth the sacrifice to even prioritize our time. I mean, it's a hard thing for just the church to get together and be here to begin to sing and worship on time. We've determined that the gathering is not worth the possibility of my newborn baby through like, you know, two years old getting sick so I can't come to church. They might catch something. And there's times those are needs, right? But most of that, if we're honest, is just our, inf- our insecurity and our fear. We, we've determined the gathering is not w- worth missing the possible promotion at work if I just grind and give my life to the job. We've determined that the gathering is not worth scheduling our vacation a little different, that the mission isn't worth my leisure to give those things aside. No, we've compromised and compromised and we've stood high on our stool of freedom and anyone who challenged our compromise, we so quickly called them a legalist, quenched any conviction that might have came in the conversation and moved forward affirming our own discernment. And we've left little room for teaching and talking. And instead, we just protect anything that might look like our idols. We've left so little room for wrestling with such things. Listen, be smart. Proverbs 22, three says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. I'm not talking about some you know, false martyr that's just gonna run into danger. I'm talking about the conversations we need to be having about who God is in light of daily life. And so as you wrestle with what will you do, and I'm honest, I'm not telling you exactly what you need to do, but as you wrestle, I need you to know a few things. The authentic church has always been marked by gospel perseverance and not personal self-preservation. The authentic church has always been marked by gospel perseverance and not self-preservation. Our brothers and sisters in Wuhan have literally been out in the street going to homeless and people who are hurting with masks. So they say, hey, here you go. And they're looking at them like, what on earth are you doing? And they get to say, I'm a Christian. Jesus loves you. Can I tell you about Jesus? And they're turning these moments of desperation into go moments. Do you not know 
The churches all over the world gather together to worship him who is worthy and they risk arrest and persecution and death on a scale much greater than anything we're talking about. And they do it every week. And if they were to wait for safety, they just wait their whole life because it's not coming. See, you need to know I can't surrender my calling to fear and risk. I cannot charge Nigerian pastors who are my friends and people I've invested in to send their kids northeast to plant churches in an area where odds are they will not return because of the persecution they'll face from Boko Haram. I can't call the Chinese to fight for the gathering when the government has said, all your kids, all your teenagers, they can't be in the same building with you. We'll withhold their education. We'll withhold their privileges. You can't gather with them. We'll come arrest you as parents. I can't say it's worth the risk. And then hide. I cannot live for myself when none of the biblical saints I looked up to did so, even if it didn't end well even if it wasn't for their comfort or for their prosperity. What's my why? What's my big truth? The Lord, my God, is one. And he is worthy. He is worthy of all glory and all honor. And he is worthy of our lives I ask the team to come on up. As they do, be reminded. God does not exist for me and my comfort. He does not exist for you and your comfort. We, I, exist for him and his glory. I know he's not safe to my pride and illusion of independence, but I know he is good. He is good. And I love him, and may he give me the strength, and may he give us, the church, the strength to love him more. Would you pray with me? Father, I love you. Lord, help me love you more. Father, Lord, I pray that you kick down the doors to my heart. Lord, I pray you kick down the doors to the church. And you come in and destroy our idols. Father, by your grace and by your mercy, would you transform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus? Forgive us as we try to protect our idols. Father, change us. Lord, we do love you. Father, help us love you more. By your grace, by your mercy, by your work in us, lead us to love you more.
And Father, my prayer is to invite you in. Lord, I know it will not be safe to my idols. I know it will not be safe to my illusion of independence. Lord, I know it will not be safe to my pride. But God, I know that you are good. And Lord, I trust in your goodness. Help us love you more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand and continue to worship with us?